I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 22nd, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the ripple effects in both sports and politics of the sexual assault allegation leveled by Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai. We'll also discuss the resurgence of the Golden State Warriors. Remember them? Nice little NBA team. Won a couple titles. Maurice Spates used to play there. And... Finally, we'll review King Richard, the new movie starring Will Smith as Venus and Serena Williams' dad. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year, season two on 1995, out now. Please subscribe. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. What do you got on your shirt today? Ken Griffey Jr., swinging. Oh, nice. That's sweet. Yeah. Because he had a sweet swing, worthy of a T-shirt. <laughs> I, I can't argue there. Uh, Joel Anderson is off this week, but that in no way reduces, it perhaps even increases the imperative to listen to Slober in season six on the LA riots, which is excellent and will remain excellent all the way through. So get on that. Uh, filling in this week, it's Hang Up Legend, staff writer, co-theater critic for The New Yorker, still shaking off the effects of Alex Caruso's tight defense on Sunday night. It's Vincent Cunningham. Great to have you here, my friend. Great to be here. I, I, I resent the Caruso talk immensely, but otherwise happy to see you. Early this month, tennis player Peng Shui posted a message on the Chinese social media network Weibo. It said that the former vice premier of China had sexually assaulted her and that she then had what she described as a consensual relationship with him. She wrote, even if it's like striking a stone with an egg and courting self-destruction like a moth to the flame, I will tell the truth about you. The post was taken down immediately. Discussion of it was censored. But word got out quickly in China and abroad, and speculation began immediately about Peng's well-being when she seemed to disappear. A statement released in her name by state-run media only made it seem that she was in more peril. In that dubious statement, Peng allegedly said that her own sexual assault claim was untrue, And that she hadn't disappeared, that I've just been resting at home and everything is fine. Stefan, in the days since, Chinese state-run media again has released more photos and videos of Peng. She reportedly took part in a video call with the president of the International Olympic Committee, Tomas Bach. But there are still serious doubts about her safety. The head of the Women's Tennis Association, Steve Simon, has been one of the loudest voices here. He said he's willing to pull the tour out of China entirely if there's not a complete and independent investigation of her allegations. And this episode has also led to increasing calls for a diplomatic boycott or a full boycott of the Winter Olympics, which are scheduled for Beijing in February. 
Yeah, the first concern, of course, is Peng's safety and the continued caution from some authorities, uh, the WTA, the U.S. government mainly, should make us all pretty wary about what's going on. I mean, if you step back and look at what has transpired here, these allegations are not just against some Chinese government official. This is one of the highest ranking or was one of the highest ranking people in the Chinese government. And it is remarkable that Peng did this while in China. Um, the second part of it is the response, of course. And what's striking to me is the willingness of the women's tennis tour to take on the Chinese government, where others, including the U.S. government and big tech companies and in sports, the IOC and the NBA, haven't been willing to criticize China for human rights and other abuses. There's a lot of money at risk here for tennis. China has been a central part of the sports strategy. Something like 10 or 11 tournaments were scheduled to be played in China in 2022. And Steve Simon has said that China would pump a billion dollars into the sport uh, in this decade. So... It, it is a, a remarkable, uh, I think, response that also indicates just how serious women's sports need to take the well-being of women athletes. First of all, as you mentioned, I mean, the first order of concern and the thing I keep thinking about is Peng's uh, safety. It seems like a very scary situation that, that happened so quickly, really. I mean, I, I think the allegations came out three weeks ago, and this has all been just a very sort of precipitous fall from there. But um, it strikes me that because sports involve personalities that we know and that we have to root for directly in the way that we don't root for, um, I don't know, various statement State Department officials, um, that in some ways sports have to be less real politic about this than actual government. So it's like this weird position where you know, if the WTA doesn't do this, we kind of would, would have faulted their, them for not taking a stand more than we fault various governments for being in a sort of kind of hopscotching relationship with China. It seems untenable. I don't know that like at some point, either many sports leagues around the world really are going to have to draw a bright line that sort of isolates Chinese, the Chinese in sports more than they are in the global community. It's it, I, I, I can't see how that all comes out in the wash at the I just it seems like there's no destination to all of this because I can't imagine how it gets better. So she was not an active player, actually. She hadn't played, I think, in a year. And her main accomplishments on the tour were in doubles. She was a world number one in doubles and she was a, a significant um star in China, the first um, player, male or female, to be top-ranked in singles or doubles. But she's not somebody who anyone who's not a hardcore tennis fan or a Chinese person really would have heard of. And so um, I think, to your point, Vincent, it's, it's not just that sports are um, personal when it comes to the stars and the players that we already know. It's that they, they can become personal even when we don't, <laughs> we don't know who the people are going into um, the story. But, um, you know, focusing on the WTA, because I think if it wasn't for Steve Simon and their initial statement after the, like, everything is fine, nothing to see here um, thing that was released in Peng's name, after, um, you know, Steve Simon released a statement basically um, saying, we don't believe this. That's kind of where everything has escalated 
from. And I can imagine this having taken a different path. She wasn't really an active player. The WTA is so much invested in Asia and in China specifically. We've seen other commissioners, namely Adam Silver, make a much different choice. And so, you know, Stefan, just back to the question of the the women's tennis of it all. Um, do you find it surprising what Simon has done here? And and can you imagine this whole story having taken a, a different path, if not for the, the choices that they've made? I think the predictable path that it could have taken would have been one of cautious silence, right? Nothing too loaded. We are negotiating. We're, we're, we're in touch with the U.S. government. We are hoping that this all resolves well. I mean, again, like you said, this is a 35-year-old uh, a player who was not super active and was never that, you know, <laughs> never a prominent name. Um, so f- the the stakes for the women's tennis, in the West at least, um, so the stakes for the WTA outside of China um, seem to be, you know, arguably were much higher for them to take a, a, a concerted, and outspoken uh, role here. I mean, the, you know, the, the the way it could have gone was the way it went with the NBA. I mean, the NBA still lost something like 150 to 200 million dollars after Daryl Morey, who was then with the Houston Rockets, tweeted his support of Hong Kong protesters, and the Chinese government went ballistic. Um, so the silence would have been, you know, and 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 a sort of very bland statement would have been the predictable outcome, but to go full bore indicates that, to me anyway, I mean, that the tour cares about the well-being of athletes and is sending a message to not only other countries, but to anybody um, that the, the, the abuse and assault and, and, the, and any sort of action against these players is intolerable. And that's pretty brave. I mean, we don't know the backstory entirely, so we have to take the WTA at its word. But this is an enormous business risk for them, um, at least it appears, on, you know, from the outside. What do you make, Vincent, of Ines Cantor kind of taking on the role of moral conscience here and writing an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying um, that the Olympics should be boycotted in Pung's name. This is the NBA player, Turkish uh, Erdogan critic, now plays for the Boston Celtics. But he's also been tweeting like extreme invective towards LeBron James in particular, saying, you know, that China is the big boss and the king isn't isn't calling out China because they're, you know, they're they're paying his his bills through through Nike. Like what what do you make of the the NS Canner of it all? It's so it's so strange and 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 you know NS Cantor has a very particular personality, but you know sometimes it takes a particular personality, perhaps a, a certain streak of unlikable uh, stubbornness to 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 be the person that stands up in situations like this um he famously Ennis Cantor was uh himself his family was implicated and, and censured because of his uh outward speech on on Turkey on the Turkish government his own government or the government of his home country um so it's hard to sort of 
give him a demerit for his sincerity in issues like this. Um, he also, I don't know if you saw, he also made an appearance on CNN recently where he was like, not only LeBron James, Michael Jordan has never done anything for the, for the black community because he wants, you know, to keep his sneaker deal. So he's developed this real critique about sort of athletes in the sort of vice grip of their, um, their, their sort of corporate overlords as it, uh, relates to endorsements and things like this. And I don't, you know, I don't think that there's anything that you can really, I mean, what can, what, what argument can you make? It's true that LeBron James, um, sort of not only stayed silent during the whole, uh, Hong Kong episode with Daryl Morey, but, you know, uh, kind of put himself in a position to scold Daryl Morey because, you know, you, you could have put people in trouble. You, you could have lost the NBA money. You know, there was a sort of backlash against, Maury, who is, you know, got his own problems and is sort of a self-aggrandizer at times, but in this moment was correct, you know. So I don't think you can really argue with Cantor, but it does put, I imagine, even his team in a, in a strange position because the Celtics are not going to come out and say these things and they're not going to put themselves even in a position to be agreeing with him, really. So it's like the 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 ultimate test of how free an individual is within within these leagues to speak out. Um, well, and, so we're operating yeah. on like a couple of different levels here. Like the first and most important one is about the actual atrocities that are being committed in China and, and by China towards the Uyghurs, towards uh, dissidents, potentially towards Peng Shui. Um, and then there's the political debates about what um, the United States and other governments should do about this, you know, the the potential boycott of the Olympics is one of those things. And then you have the culture war debate. And um, I think what Steve Simon has done show and, and showing kind of an alternate path and an alternate history of like what, how the NBA could have responded um, to Daryl Morey's tweet and the backlash, I think is going to be used to criticize the NBA by people who are inclined to do so by people in good faith and in, in bad faith. Um, but I, I think it is fascinating to me that now we do have this kind of alternate real world example of somebody choosing a different path. And so it's not actually hypothetical that you can look at a roughly similar circumstance there are obviously differences but a roughly similar one and see somebody making a very different choice and basically being willing to put the the money on the table and being I mean, praised by dollars. Ted Cruz for it for instance like right right like, like there's now and and I think there's like a bipartisan um kind of a, agreement that what the WTA has done is the the right decision I haven't seen any kind of criticism of it at least. And I hate to be like, it, it feels a little bit naive and I, I feel kind of bad to even say this, but like when you are saying like, Stefan, well, they just really care about their players. It always makes me like, Hmm, is that really, is that really what's, uh, what's going on here? Like, obviously that, like that, that's it part of sends it. that message in yeah, this but, it's instance, but maybe there's, um, actually a realization that from a financial perspective, this is actually, um, there's an enormous worldwide constituency for um, a league to have made this move. Um, an international uh, sports organization, one that's going to be celebrated politically and culturally 
in this country for having uh, done this. Um, it would be one thing if he was making himself a pariah in America by doing the right thing or making him a pariah in the West for doing this. But I think there's going to be some good financial and marketing opportunities for the WTA coming out of this and positioning I mean, institutions itself this don't, way. Institutions don't do this without a backup plan. Um, our friend Ben Rothenberg um, uh, noted in, in a piece on Sl- in, for Slate that this is a good time for the WTA to reconsider its investments in China. There haven't been any tournaments. Uh, there haven't been any international sports at all in China since the pandemic. Um, there are no Chinese athletes, Chinese tennis players who are, who are at the top of the game. There's none in the top 50 in the WTA singles rankings and just three in the top 100, Ben pointed out. And it's sports. There will be, there's, there's always someone willing to fill the vacuum and host events and throw money at something as popular as women's tennis. So strategically, this may be an opportunity for tennis to get out of a place that the world is saying you shouldn't be in and not run that much of a financial risk. Yeah. Part of that, though, I mean, and this is where it gets, I think, a little tricky, is that part of it is the structural differences between the WTA and the NBA, right? Like the WTA is by its very nature global and therefore there is a way that something like the WTA can uh, isolate one bad actor like China, right? And say um, the the world of women's tennis is, is against this. And right, there is a rallying effect that might redound to its benefit somewhere down the line. Whereas like the NBA is a national, like we could imagine if it was like the you know, National Tennis Association, like U.S. women's tennis. And if it's imperative, like the NBA's were to, like NBA's, the NBA's total imperative is to globalize in a way that the WTA is already global, right? They're in, in these very different situations where the NBA, it's like, in order for Adam Silver's whole reason for being the commissioner at this point in time um, depends on the continued viability of this China thing. Um which I think puts them in a a, a kind of moral vice. Um, I, you know, it's so funny. Even with this counterexample, I'm not sure I could ever see the NBA doing this. Which is, you know, and I'm I'm not saying this to make an excuse. I think it's that's horrible, and and the morality of issues like this should override that sort of uh, expansionary agenda. But. Um, and the other, the other thing, of course, is the WTA in this situation has the, the the rhetorical thing of saying, you know, it's one of us. Right. Somebody who played right. for, who is a women's tennis player is this is you know so this is our issue now. Where the NBA, at least the the outlines of the their their one great confrontation was, you know, some guy who lives in Houston tweeting about a political issue of which he is not necessarily personally a part. So. Um, I I I don't think the NBA is ever going to get out of this. I think the NFL would do so much with, uh, better in in deep deep quotations, right? Because the NFL's <laughs> great big plan is not to globalize. Their plan is just to have more games run in America, right? Like let's have a twenty five game season, right? Like they'll push this as far as they can go. 
but they don't care as much about China. And they're also, they also want to stay on Ted Cruz's good side because that's their natural. Con- so they, they won't mind being a China hawk. I just think the NBA in some way is in the, like, it symbolizes the sort of whatever you want to, like, broad left and right of center problem with China, which is that so many things in our world that exist cannot get done without the help or tacit permission of this hugely problematic power. And I think we should end, Josh, with the Olympics. The Winter Olympics are scheduled to open in Beijing in a couple of months. Um, And the Olympics, of course, are the most namby-pamby, mealy-mouthed, on the side of dictators and other awful people uh, organization that the world maybe has ever known. Um, So does any of this surprise you? And do you feel like the IOC will just blithely sort of do what it does. Everything is safe. We will have a great games. We are apolitical. <laughs> it is time for our peaceful two weeks of non-politics. Well, just to tilt that question slightly on its axis, I mean, I think this um, was just incredibly ill-timed from China's perspective because this looming question of the Olympics, the when and the the how of the Olympics um, is going to be hanging over this for months um, and putting pressure... too close, right? I mean, timing is just way too close. Putting pressure on China around the punk situation and putting pressure on nations and political actors to do something. And there's just something very clear that can be done where often, you know, and and maybe another time it's just like, all right, well, what are we going to do about this? It's not like we're going to like send in uh, troops or anything to go, go rescue her. It's just like, m- maybe it just ends. But um, with the Olympics hanging there, it's just like such an obvious question around, well, if um, we're not convinced of her safety, if there's not an independent investigation, then, you know, maybe we just won't show up or there'll be a soft boycott or um, and maybe that's what ultimately ends up happening is like maybe Jill Biden doesn't go, which I mean, if that's the case, then who the hell cares? But um, it's just this kind of escalating series of like fake she's okay moments has just been so creepy. And it's just like, what is the the next thing going to be? Like she's out in public in a glass box like reading the the newspaper or something. I, I mean, it, it just feels hard to see this ending in a way that's like mutually satisfactory. And so that's why I think it's just going to keep escalating with the Olympics as this looming deadline. And the political pressure here is going to be uh, immense from, from all sides. I don't know how it's going to resolve, but it's going to continue to be a, a big thing. Up next, the resurgence of the Golden State Warriors. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the life and career of Carmelo Anthony, who's having a renaissance with the Lakers, and who Vincent interviewed recently for The New Yorker. Curious chat about Melo, you need to be a Slate Plus member. That membership will get you extra hang-up segments, and you can listen to all Slate podcasts without ads and get unlimited reading on the Slate website. It's only a dollar for the first month, so give Slate Plus a try. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. That's slate.com slash hangup plus. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Last year, Steph Curry and Draymond Green carried the Golden State Warriors all the way to the State Farm NBA Tournament play-in game. Yes, that's what it was called, where they lost to the Memphis Grizzlies. This was considered something of an overachievement. Kevin Durant was long gone. Clay Thompson had suffered his second major injury in two years. And the roster after Steph and Dre was a bunch of spare parts and unfulfilled promise. And now, well, the Warriors, with Durant longer gone and Clay still recovering from his torn Achilles tendon, suddenly are the statistical and eyeball best team in the NBA. After a 119 104 win over the Toronto Raptors on Sunday night. The Warriors have a league-best record of 15-2. Curry is on pace to shoot a billion threes and make like 999 million of them. Clay is due back soon, and their spare parts are playing more than well. On Sunday, Curry had a terrible shooting game, but Jordan Poole and Andrew Wiggins combined for 65 points. Vincent, how surprised should we be by the new old Warriors? I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like there should be no surprise at this point that Steph Curry is so good, even though you always kind of detect that it's amazing that he's still doing what he's doing. There's a, always a hint of wonder, but that should be no surprise. But what should be genuinely surprising, and you have to give them credit for it, even though they've been obnoxious about it in the past. I don't know if you remember that Warriors uh, New York Times Magazine article, I think, where they're like, you know, light years ahead. But here we are, and they kind of look light years ahead. They've got the the old guys from the old core of the 16, 17, 18, um, uh, minus Kevin Durant, of course. Um, and then this young crop, the Jordan Pools, the the Kamingas, a newly a sort of undead Andrew Wiggins. Um, it's amazing what they've done to sort of revivify this team from the bottom. And still, you know, now Clay is going to come back. Um, Wiseman, another uh, one part of this young cohort coming back. It's amazing. And so as a feat of team building, I think we kind of should be surprised uh, and, and should be impressed. I am. I am. They're, they look awesome. They're shooting more threes than they ever did. Many more threes than they ever did, both on a, a team level and on a Steph-specific level. They're playing uh, number one defense in the league, which they were doing at the height of their powers. And, you know, Draymond in particular looks revived and is playing at like a defensive player of the year type level. Um, it's so interesting, Vincent, how um, they've faced this really challenging path of, you know, what do you do after Kevin Durant leaves and you have, and, and Clay gets hurt, and you have maybe half to two thirds of a great team? Like, do you go down to zero uh, of, a, <laughs> of a great team? Or do you try to get up to 75 or, or 80, knowing that you're, you're not going to get to 100? And it's challenging to try to incorporate 
rookies um, and guys that are not on the proverbial timeline with uh, a, a bunch of players who, and like, I, I feel like Steph and Draymond are both player types that you wouldn't think would age particularly well. Um, it's it's just been um, a, a really interesting path that they've taken. And then you look at this team and you're like, they don't have, you know, an, a very old Russell Westbrook and like a bunch of like um, guys making the veteran minimum. Like they did it in a way that was like kind of trying to chart a middle course. And it seems like this is the year when it's paying off for them. And they did bring back Andre Iguodala, which, you know, fits both, I think, structurally, historically, you know, old head that knows what he's doing and understands the franchise. Um, Vincent, I'm curious, like, how much should we be crediting their front office and Steve Kerr, the head coach in particular? I mean, this feels like not just a juggling job, but a, a makeover that is paying off, like, immediate dividends in some ways. I mean, this you have is to really just the genius, of, the genius of Joe Lacob, really. It's just, <laughs> I mean, you we, have, have, to, to we have to credit the owner here. I did not credit the owner, Josh. You just made that sarcastic comment. <laughs> um, but, you know, throw out two years ago, right, when Steph was hurt and they had the worst record in the NBA. Um, and last year, like I said, looked kind of like, eh, you know, they're going to be an okay middle-of-the-pack team. They just don't have enough star power the way that the Nets or the Bucks with, you know, with, with, with Giannis do. I think, I mean, I think that they, yes, the, the management team, of the Warriors has done a good job. It's it, there's no way to to really argue otherwise. But I think that they've done that with a great benefit, which is a super duper duper star who, at his best, is one of the five best players in the league, probably three best, whatever. I guess this comes down to taste. Who kind of makes it impossible to go the down to zero route. I mean, I, I I can't even imagine a Warriors season unless it was under the cover of a huge Steph Curry injury again, right? Where it's like, he's gone. Okay, we'll kind of reload a bit. But every time he's out there, it, it seems like a waste, not only of his talent, but a sort of uh, a wagging of the tongue in the direction of the gods to not be at full effort. So you have to be. And therefore, the rest of it becomes a kind of perhaps simpler arithmetic. Um, but, you know, some of the basic blocking and tackling, right? They've they've continued to draft well. They do things like you just mentioned, bring back Iguodala, who understands the system, and then is great. I, I would imagine he seems to have taken, um, he and Draymond both seem to have taken Kaminga under their wing, especially. You see them talking to him all the time. Um, it really is all the sort of culture things that we can usually kind of dismiss when we talk about basketball. It seems like it really is there. And it helps if, like, you've got, the like a literal saint as also one of the best players of the league who has signaled his desire never to leave your team. Um, that's a really good place to start. It seems to me. So yeah, um, Steph, Steph, Steph signed a four year, $215 million contract extension in the off season. Yeah. He's, he's there. And I mean, I think he takes it seriously, the whole stay there, make a legacy thing. So, I mean, that's, I mean, it's such a luxury for the people whose job is to then figure out, uh, what the rest is. And they're doing all this with James Wiseman being out yeah. um, all year so far. And you would think, like imagining a scenario where the Warriors got back to um, 
to where they'd been after that lost season with Steph being out, you would think, all right, well, they got the number two pick. That must have been the reason that they were able to elevate themselves. And they didn't get much from Wiseman last year. Last year, yeah. No. Either. And so it's, I think, still an open question about how he fits with that team. I mean, there could be a, a point where they cash him in for something else, some some one else um, that, that better fits what they're trying to do, or maybe he'll be amazing. I think that's the big unanswered question, along with what version of Clay Thompson they're going to be getting back when they get when they do get him back, which is around uh, Christmas time. But like this team has been fascinating so far this year. They're only going to get more fascinating. And if you look at the kind of, you know, you said Stefan statistically and just by record, they're the best team in the league. If you look at pro- projection systems, I think there's still some dubiousness about the Warriors given um, you know, the scoring margin that a team like Utah is putting up, given the, like, you know, Phoenix is on this, like, ridiculous streak right now and made the finals last year. And they had like, a pretty the soft Buc- schedule for the first eight or nine games of the season. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the Bucks are kind of just, like, coasting along as, you know, champions uh, often do, but you think that they'll be an enormous threat. Maybe Kyrie will get year. vaccinated. Maybe Kyrie will get vaccinated. I mean, there, there's not. I, I think there is not reason to believe that the Warriors are title favorites at this point. But they are a huge threat to get out of the West, which again is like a, a just a, a huge sh- shift and a major accomplishment for for this team. And um, it just feels to me like it's crazy to even say this, but there's there's just more opportunities to, I think, appreciate and understand how good Steph Curry is, even though we've seen him kind of in every scenario so far in his career. But the thing that I think I'm better understanding this year is like the interplay, because there's like this critique of like, oh, Steph is not that great on on uh, defense, but he's certainly improved on that end over his career. But like he makes everyone so much better on offense just based on his presence on the court, like they're so often just playing five on four yeah. because of the need to have two guys um, shadowing him or covering him on the, the pick and roll. So that makes Draymond more, not only more playable, but like a huge weapon on offense for them um, because of his ability to um, see the floor and everything that we know that Draymond Green does. But if you can make the best defensive player in the league, who in some circumstances probably would be an offensive minus on some teams. If you can turn him by how good you are into an offensive plus, like it, it almost feels like you're underselling Steph to describe him as like playing at an MVP level. Because I think more than any other player in the league, he just can make his other teammates. Um, it, it's like, again, it's like an understatement to say he makes them better. He like makes them um, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure what these statistics are, but I read that Curry leads the NBA in screen assists and screen assist points, which sounds really important and <laughs> impressive. Um, and he's among the top 15 guards in deflections and top 20 in steals. So all of those things point to, yeah, making everybody else better, right? One of the things about the the sort of stratification and ages on this team is that like you can see immediately these guys who are young and who, you know, 
in other situations would perhaps be playing out of a certain insecurity about their place in the league. They're just playing so hard because they want to live up to this thing. Like they're it, it's it's like it's 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 almost like being a spectator in in a sort of sports movie. They watched it just like we did, the sixteen and seventeen teams. And now they're just there. Now they're now they're looking over and it's Steph Curry that's next to them. And so they're just playing. I mean, the the amount of effort and as always, like there isn't like with the Warriors, unlike any other team, there is like an affective level to it because like everybody's having so much fun. I was so mad at my, myself not for going to for not going to the Barclays Center. I had a bunch of friends who were at Barclays um, when they played the Nets in that amazing game where by the end of the game, the you know, most of the crowd is cheering for Steph Curry to get 40 points and gasping every time he got the ball. They were shouting you know, MVP, weren't they? Shouting MVP. I mean, it, it became pure entertainment of a kind that's like hard as an opposing team to deal with. It's just a sort of it becomes a bonanza. And I mean, and and he can he can do that, you know? And Steph does that and he makes his teams part of that. And it it changes the game. I mean, it's like a it's a way of creating a home court advantage everywhere anywhere you go. Um and it I think well, winning the, winning creates the kind of joyfulness, as does style of play. Yeah, but um, it's hard to look at the Warriors and then look at the Lakers and the Nets, and <laughs> you know the Lakers and the Nets. Maybe they still both have better odds of winning a championship, um, but it doesn't seem like they're having that much fun right now, and it doesn't seem like that much fun to beat. A fan, yeah. Read those teams that I mean, it feels a little bit like poor little, you know, poor little rich kid, you know, <laughs> like boo boo who, uh, you know, you're not having fun with uh, James Harden and uh, Kevin Durant or with LeBron James and and Anthony Davis, and and then you get into this kind of slippery territory, Vincent, where you're, where you're getting into like things like you know, oh, it's it's because the you know. Steph stayed stayed in Golden State, and and you get into these like questions of like values and culture that right. uh, I think um, get into sort of dicey territory. But if you just look at it from a subjective point of view, at least in this moment, if we were to stop time, it's like the Nets and the Lakers are <laughs> not having nearly as much fun <laughs> as the Warriors or Dub Nation. Yeah, and the, the other part of that, I think, is that over the last two years, I think fan appreciation of Draymond Green and who he is as a human being have has grown. I mean, yeah. he has demonstrated that he's a really great voice for the game. He's incredibly open and honest, and he feels a lot more likable. There's less sort of the on-court bullshit distraction that labeled, you know, that led people to label him as immature. Right. And now we are seeing this sort of fully formed intellectual who is really <laughs> good at analyzing basketball and feels like a good guy. Well, that goes too to the thing about like, you know, success and victory breeding atmosphere. Because Draymond is the classic case of a guy who's awful to work with when things are not going well, but right. great when they are, you know? And when he's on a winning team, there's almost nothing like it. Because first of all, you can see his intelligence manifesting itself on the floor. By this point, he and Curry, the 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 little dribble handoffs they do toward the top of the key and the little just the little sort of the way he negotiates the pick and roll with Steph, it's amazing. And if you like basketball, it's, it's, there's nothing like it. It's like a dance. And I do think, you know, Josh, you mentioned, um, the, the slightly dicey territory of like, you know, they stayed, you know, the, the player empowerment debates. Like if for a second you put those aside, 
there's a level on which it's just true that because they're on the same team, wearing the same colors, and they know each other so well, continuity is a real thing in basketball. And the sort of nostalgia effect, it's like, wow, it's just like they were six years ago and they're coming back. That's a narrative that very few other teams can claim. And it's real. It's real not just for the, the fans of that team, but it's real for me because I remember those games. I remember those teams. I remember, you know, it's the the, the precious moment in being a basketball fan is like when a new team is coming up and like, oh, these guys. And all of a sudden you have to grow a new consciousness for why you appreciate this instead of what's come before. And for that to like happen again is it's amazing. Coming up next, we'll review King Richard about Richard Williams and Venus and Serena. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The story of the Williams sisters, Venus and Serena, is one of the greatest, not just in the history of modern sports, but in modern America. The remarkable rise of two number one tennis players from the same family, who changed their sport both on the court and off, and inspired others to follow their lead. The new movie King Richard tells the beginning of that story, when their father, Richard Williams, took on conventional wisdom and the tennis establishment to guide his daughters from public courts in Compton, California, to the cusp of stardom. In this clip, Richard, played by Will Smith, talks to Venus. She's about to make her pro debut. This next step you got to take, it, it would be hard for anybody. But for you, you're not going to just be representing you. You're going to be representing every little black girl on earth. And you're going to be the one got to go through that gate. And I just never wanted you to look up and see your daddy running away. Vincent, there's a lot for us to discuss about the movie, about the Williams family, but let's start with, did you like King Richard? I liked aspects of King Richard. It, it's so interesting. Like it, it wanted to imprint a um, sort of classic sports biopic arc on a story that really was not that. You know, in some ways it, it was breaking this new ground and like we've all had in our mind the archetypal figure of the 
the sports parent or the you can broaden it out like this the sort of uh, child pushing parent like the pageant mom or things like this there there is this figure and in that way it's really interesting right and so the the time is when it let itself be that a kind of story about this under discussed kind of figure i liked it the times when it used the sports to impose a sports biopic arc i was less interested in it because we kind of um we understand that and it's you know so but it was interesting and Will Smith was, I will say, better than I thought he would be. I was worried about this. And he was pretty good. He leavened a lot of that pathos that, like, from that, that clip, you know, the stuff that, like, you kind of might expect to be in a story like this, the inspirational speech, the, um, of which there were several. But leavened it with, like, he was really funny in, in parts of this. There was, there was humor. Um, and there was... Um, there was also just a real sense of the sort of milieu that they were coming from. A lot of the early stuff of, you know, him getting into fights with these neighborhood characters and stuff that was really interesting and that I thought Will Smith handled well. I think one of the questions about the film is how um, faithful to reality is it or would it be? Uh, the family was deeply involved in the production of the movie. One of Richard Williams' other daughters, Isha Price, who's a lawyer, was deeply involved in the production. She was on the set all the time. Venus and Serena are listed as executive producers, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And the reality is that, you know, it seems pretty faithful. I mean, the, the, the image that we have had of Richard Williams for 20 years was of an overbearing um, tennis father. Um, leavened, as you said, by these other factors in in in, in their story, um, how he turned them into into exceptional athletes as when they were children, how he took on the the tennis establishment, um, and you know I guess it could have gone further in terms of you know, revealing some of his other uh, flaws and indiscretions, but it's not like. Richard Williams comes off as the sort of perfect inspirational sports dad who triumphed over adversity to create these two number one tennis players. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I just found myself thinking so much about the Williams family and about the sisters coming out of this, which I, I think in one sense is like a commentary on the movie's effectiveness. But I think in another, perhaps more accurate sense, I think the family is more interesting than the movie is. And that is, and the, the questions raised about the family, I think are just better answered in a venue that is not a biopic or any sort of sure. like um, treatment, um, cinematic treatment that's like non-documentary. Non just because of, as you were alluding to, Vincent, just like the kind of genre conventions um, that even if you are not entirely beholden to them, they're just like the guardrails are incredibly strong in in both the the biopic mm -hmm. and the inspirational sports movie genres that it can't quite escape them. But like one question that I have that is maybe not even answerable in any genre, but I think is just so interesting is was Richard Williams's plan, which is kind of touted repeatedly in the movie, um, it's represented in this pamphlet that he sends to coaches, it's represented as very kind of anti-establishment and being kind of underappreciated because of his race, because of his background. 
was it actually instrumental in the success of his daughters? Or was what was instru- instrumental just like having them be on the court for long stretches of time? From the age of five. In, in any kind of circumstance. Yeah. And like the just sort of like broader, more generalized kind of support that he offered um, was actually pulling them out of junior. Would they have been hugely successful if they had played in junior tennis um, as opposed to having been pulled out? I think probably so. Um, but again, Vincent, that's just like not, that, that's a question that I think is like important and fascinating, but it's just not one that a movie like this could ever hope to answer. Yeah. In some ways it has to zoom past that question precisely because we need to be on the sort of path to ascent, right? Like early on we see, you know, he's bringing them to, they walk into this beautiful tennis court and you see them, um, they're, they're getting to see Pete Sampras and John McEnroe up close, right? As Richard's about to make this great overture to San Francisco coach to get, um, get them, but eventually just Venus, uh, sort of coached by him. And, you know, so it's got to seem like a product of the plan and it's got to seem it's got to be moving up these rungs. So um, in some ways, the great movie would be a sort of like uh, uh long meditative look at those years before any of that ever happened. Right. Like the, the ages of five to 15 or whatever, just all all that time. It would take like, you know, a sort of. um I don't know, a sort of Fred Wiseman approach, right? It'd be like a seven hour movie of just like stroke after stroke after stroke. That would, that's, <laughs> that's what, where, that's where the mystery is, right? What we all want to know about athletes is like, what is the meeting of genetics and practice and preparation and mindset? I think mindset is one thing that's really interestingly, um, at least portrayed, if mm-hmm. not scoured in this, because it's like every moment he's like, you can have this house. You're going to have this house. You're going to be the, like, if you believe at all in sort of like the power of positive thinking or whatever, like he's, this is something that actually gives you something to think about. And, or the power of people, also of a domineering parent. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you have right. to get A's aren't good enough. You have to get A pluses. Venus is already learning four languages because she's going to be prepared to play internationally. Um, right. That right. my children can have, there is no second that will go wasted. Um, in their in their childhoods, um, the drive. I mean, this is a this is a male centered film, right? This is this yeah. is a movie about a man dominating these these young women, and there is the sort of requisite one scene of pushback from Richard's then wife, the girl's parent, the girl's mother, or a scene um, where they have it out in the kitchen with the girl sitting on the stairs listening from afar. Um, but largely, this is a vindication for the way that Richard Williams chose to turn his daughters into, uh, into athletes. Um, and it is a sort of justification of his 85-page pamphlet. Yeah. And not, and you know, not even just turn his daughters into athletes, but like create them with the the, the express purpose, like to like embark on a project from conception. To, you right. know, it's it's mind boggling. Yes, I mean, I mean, just talking about how it portrays Richard as an imperfect man. I mean, there are some things that it doesn't portray. I mean, in the the slate, what's fact and what's fiction that Ellen Stein put together um, notes that. Richard Williams took away his wife's birth control pills because he wanted these two uh, uh, other daughters. Um, that um, he has a whole other family 
and, and this is kind of touched on lightly in the movie, another family that he completely abandoned and never, you know, I think it was like five children mm-hmm. under the age of eight who he just never spoke to again. Um, and so th- there's a certain level of like, <laughs> you know, you, ha- you hate to use the word likability uh, because it's right. just become so fraught in any kind of d- discussion of um, television or, or film. But there's a certain level beyond which you're not going to sympathize with this character. And they certainly don't go, go beyond that level. But just right. like the, the levels of complexity of the real life story, the levels of just remarkable kind of achievement. And, um, and, and and I said this in the, in the introduction, but to me, one of the most just amazing and beautiful things about their story is just how, um, as opposed to, you know, Tiger Woods and all that he was supposed to, um, auger and, and promise. It's just like the sport just looks so different than it did when they started. And it's entirely because of them mm-hmm. and all of the um, the players who came after them credit them. And they're so kind of um, Venus and Serena, I, I think feel so um, grateful and honored, but it's, it's just, it all kind of like goes in, in both directions. And so um, I actually thought it was a smart choice by the movie to end where it ended, not with some amazing uh, you know, not with Serena winning the U.S. Open or, or Venus, Venus winning Wimbledon, winning Wimbledon right. or, or something like that, but with Venus kind of losing her second pro match. But for me, like, the, the their story is just, like, going to be going on for, you know, decades beyond mm-hmm. when they stop. Well, and is, and is, you is could it, just carry it, you could carry it forward forever. Isn't one of the interesting things about the Williams sisters that Richard Williams, in the end, created these really good people. I mean, they turned out well. There is no act here, there hasn't been yet, as in with Tiger Woods, where there is a tremendous public letdown. I mean, sure, on court, Serena, criticism, tantrums. But as people, it does feel like the effort that Richard Williams and Orsine Price put into making sure that Venus and Serena were more than just tennis. And the film is you know, pretty explicit about that, where we see the sort of the rich white country club parents yelling at their daughters during matches against against Venus. Um, you know, that feels like it's paid off, that these are ambassadors to sports, like you said, Josh, whose effect is going to be you know, eternal in tennis. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this, the most interesting thing about the movie is that the sisters wanted it made. You know, that they, um, that this is, was an experience that they wanted to memorialize and thought of, think of as part of, of their own in some ways because of the, um, you know, it's strange because of the way that their father brought them, uh, their parents brought them into the world, um, with this sort of intention means that they really, you know, their story really is an extension of his to the extent that like, we all say that about our parents, but in this way, that's a kind of a different and perhaps more literal thing. Um, and so for them to, you know, some of the criticism, some people have criticized the fact that this movie exists at all, right? Because why would we be talking about this man who is their father instead of these amazing athletes? Um, and of course the answer to that is like, they're so involved. They want it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's interesting. 
Of course, it brings into uh, effect also the thing that Josh says. It's just like because they brought it into being, they also are curating it in a certain way that um, perhaps does reflect their experience, though. Because if all that other stuff, right, this other family, other things like that were on the periphery of their father's mind, were kind of shunted aside by him, they were necessarily shunted aside by them. In some ways, this is very like perhaps phenomenologically correct, right? Like this is that's this is what their life was, them and their dad and their mom and their sisters moving in this direction, right? And so if you think about it as a chronicle of someone's experience, perhaps it's, you know, perhaps it feels less evasive or something like that. Maybe if it's it's like, this is what it was like. And we should just say a few words about the young actresses who played Venus and Serena. Sanaya Sidney plays Venus. Um, Demi Singleton plays Serena. And I thought they were, they were both quite excellent. And they did a good job, I think, in the movie through... You know, obviously they they trained, but also just through uh, movie magic, making the tennis seem um, realistic, or at least not standing out as being being unrealistic. But um, just the uncanny, there's an uncanniness to especially Demi Singleton who played Serena, and there's just something I I think in any uh, movie like this where. It, it just she just seems like Serena, like she looks yeah. like her. She and kind of sounds like, kind like of her. The voice sounds like her. Just it it looks like you're looking at a young Serena Williams, and like the the Sampras and the um, and the McEnroe <laughs> and the Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. I'm like that. Those, those people do not look like those. No, I was like those people do not look like really? those people. That 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 took me I out of the Mac, really? I thought Mac kind of looked like that. I thought Mac was more, but yes. But but when you're when you have adults, I I think there's just going to always be, mm-hmm. you know, no matter no matter how good the likeness is, it's always going to be something, uh, you know, it, it's clear that it's that it's a movie and that it's that's acting. But with a with a kid, you can kind of suspend your disbelief. Right, you can project. Way. And that was that was one of I think the small pleasures of the of the movie. I will me. say one last point, and this is really for Josh, that I went back and I looked up the. Uh, climactic match where 14-year-old Venus plays Arantxa Sanchez-Vicario in the second round of that tournament in her debut. Um, and the, the, the dramatic moment in the film is that Venus is up a set and 3-1, and Sanchez-Vicario takes a 10-minute bathroom break to, to fluster her. <laughs> that did not the apparently most dramatic happen bathroom, in real life. Um, the most dramatic bathroom break in cinematic <laughs> yes, history. Um, the New York Times account just says that Sanchez Vicario, correctly sensing it was time to get her own game into overdrive, did just that. In fact, she composed herself again so completely that she shut Williams out the remainder of the match. At 3-1, I thought she was a little tired, and I knew that was the moment to start playing my game if I wanted to win. Not at 3-1, I was totally flustered and decided to try to psych her out by going to the bathroom. <laughs> Justice for Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. I thought she came, she's the one that should be pissed about this film. I wonder if they got her approval to turn her into a into a villain. <laughs> the part of the Richard Williams story that is so fascinating and strange that wasn't in the movie that I think actually could have been in the movie without having to make any kind of major changes or compromises is the fact that he actually moved the family into Compton. Um, this idea. Um, and, and he has said it that like the ghetto makes champions and like Muhammad Ali grew up in the ghetto. And so I'm going to move my family there, um, to help, you know, toughen them up. And, and that's not, 
we, we don't get that sense in the movie. We just get the sense that like this is where they live and this is where they are. But it's just, like such. I feel like that fact more than anything else has helped me understand Richard Williams. Um, and I think would be in keeping with the portrait that um, that this film is is building out. And so I was like slightly just dis- when I like was reading these like what's fact and what's fiction afterwards, and I was reminded of that. I was like slightly disappointed that they had not made the choice to in- include that in the movie. But wouldn't it um, uh, undermine the idea that that it was something to grow out of, right? Because he repeats over and over and again in the movie that I don't want you to. You know, look at this house, look at that house, look at this house, you can get out of here. Um, I think that would have been confusing for viewers, but yeah, it is a fascinating... He's a confusing guy. I mean, it's a... a Like, people are confusing. And now it is time for After Balls. I spent part of Saturday watching the National Women's Soccer League final between the Washington Spirit and the Chicago Red Stars, and it did not disappoint. Washington came from behind to win 2-1, to one, capping a tumultuous season that saw the team's former head coach fired for verbal and emotional abuse, a league investigation of the club's sexist culture, ownership turmoil, and even two COVID-related forfeits. The big star of the game was Trinity Rodman. Yes, that is Dennis. Daughter. The 19 year old Rodman was the league's number two pick, the youngest player ever drafted, and rookie of the year. And she absolutely bossed this game in the second half. Some deft footwork and subsequent pass led to Washington's first goal on a penalty kick. She had a long range screamer off of the post. And then in extra time in the 97th minute, she arced a stunning cross field pass that national team defender Kelly O'Hara headed in on the run for the game winner. Rodman is the future. She's fast. She burns people with the ball, and she is fearless. As for her father, being Dennis Rodman's kid obviously has not been easy. Dennis showed up at a playoff game in North Carolina last week, which was a surprise because, as Trinity wrote on Instagram afterward, my dad doesn't play a big role in my life at all, and most people don't know that. We don't see eye to eye on many things. I go months, if not years, without his presence or communication. She said she was shocked, overwhelmed, happy, sad, everything that he came to the game. But Rodman also has said that being Dennis's daughter motivated her. Earlier this year, she told Caitlin Murray of The Guardian, you could say it put a fire under me more than pulling me down. I was more in the mindset of rather than saying, oh, this is annoying, I don't even have a name. I was more like, oh, I'll show these people I'm an individual and I'm going to develop in soccer like he did in basketball. So I think I'm more driven because of it. But Trinity Rodman also has made it clear who raised her, her mother, Michelle Moyer, who separated from Dennis Rodman in 2004, a year after they were married. Having a dad like I do, no one asks about my mom because she's obviously not an NBA star, but I just want people to know that my mom's been my support system in everything in life, and she's my best friend and my rock, she told Caitlin Murray. I did a little digging, and one of the first mentions of Trinity Rodman that I turned up 
was from a 2011 story in the Detroit Free Press about the ceremony where the Pistons retired Dennis's number 10 jersey. Let me just read from Drew Sharp's column about that day. Nine-year-old Trinity Rodman appeared confused when looking at photographs of her father during his early piston days before the body painting and facial piercings. She looked up at her mother. That's your daddy, Michelle assured her daughter. It doesn't look like him, the little girl said. Anyway, I can't wait to see Trinity Rodman on the national team and if things progress as they could at the 2023 Women's World Cup. She actually was called up for two friendlies in Australia next month, but declined for unspecified reasons. So we're going to have to wait to see Megan Rapinoe's potential successor on the USWNT. Josh, what's your Trinity Rodman? We talked earlier in the show about the possibility of a diplomatic boycott, maybe even a full-on boycott of the 2022 Winter Olympics. Obviously, a full-on boycott would mean no American athletes going to Beijing. But what's less obvious, or what was less obvious to me, is what that would mean for the American television audience. The last time there was an American Olympics boycott was in 1980 at the Summer Games in Moscow when I was four months old. So I haven't retained much about basketball player Sergei Belov's lighting of the Olympic cauldron. But even if I was sentient, I doubt I'd know much because the 1980 Summer Olympics were barely seen at all on American television. NBC won the exclusive American broadcast rights for the 1980 Games for a record $87 million. That was four times the fee that ABC had paid to air the 1976 Summer Games in Montreal. It was to be the second ever Olympics for NBC following the 1972 Winter Games with a plan for 152 and a half hours of programming, which was double what ABC had done at the 76 Summer Games. Uh, Dick Enberg was scheduled to host. NBC's on-air talent was going to include uh, Brian Gumbel, Donna DeVarona, and O.J. Simpson. NBC was sending 660 people to Moscow in total. Ads were going for $130,000 a minute. NBC claimed it was going to gross $200 million. Instead, the network lost a reported $34 million, and it aired a grand total of zero hours of special programming, choosing just to drop occasional Olympics highlights into regularly scheduled newscasts. Now it is the time in the afterball when I ask Stefan Fatsis what he remembers about the 1980 Summer Olympics on television. I was 17 years old. I don't remember much, to be honest, which maybe is because I didn't watch much of it because it wasn't really on TV that much. Uh, thank you for providing the confirmation that I needed. Uh, NBC sent 50 people instead of 660, with a spokesman saying that any filming they did will be primarily for historical use. Dick Enberg, who was going to be the host, said it's a little like having a three and a half year gestation period and then having someone come along and take away the baby. The Canadian Broadcasting Company similarly took its coverage plans down to zero, but East Germany went big. They aired 12 hours a day of coverage, even more than Moscow's 11. Uh, if you're so inclined, you can watch the official film of the 1980 Moscow Summer Olympics on YouTube. It's titled O Sport You Are Peace, <laughs> and it won the state prize of the USSR in 1982. There's footage of the opening and closing ceremony. There's a bunch of sports stuff in between. And I was, as I was fast forwarding through it, I found what I think, and we're going to have the ultimate judge here in a second, 
what might be the absolute peak moment in the history of sportocrat uh, behavior and commentary. It is a soundbite from Otto Simisek, director of the International Olympic Academy. Take it away, Otto. It's a pity that not all countries have participated, and it is most probably due to the political interference in sports, which we are uh, trying to avoid. Because in accordance to the Olympic principles, there should no be any discrimination of political, religious, uh, race, or any other kind of discrimination between people. Oh my God, that ticks every sportocrat <laughs> box. Josh, congratulations. So we did not get American athletes in the Summer Olympics in 1980. We barely got any Summer Olympics athletes on American television in 1980, but we did get that. Um, so we're, we're not completely empty. And so even if NBC ends up tossing the $2.5 billion it spent on the 2022 games down the drain, there is still hope that we might all be entertained. But it's that, it's that number, Vincent, $2.5 billion that suggests there might be some soft uh, diplomacy <laughs> going on behind the scenes from uh, from our friends and uh, the national broadcasting company. Somebody's working very hard to figure this out right now. Yes. Yes. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to sleep.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at sleep.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Vincent Cunningham, thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. For Vincent and for Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hold up. 